Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Look at any business sector today, and discussion of teams and partnerships often dominate the agenda. Teams and partnerships, particularly in business, have become not just the new normal, but almost a requirement. However, for every Hewlett and Packard, Jobs and Wozniak, Brin and Page, there are many partnership and teams that don't work. So what's the secret sauce? Why are some more than the sum of their parts, and some carry within them the seeds of their own destruction? We're going to look at this today with my guest, Shane Snow. He's a science and business journalist. He's co-founder of the company Contently, and his writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Wired, The Washington Post, and Time. He's the author of the previous book, Smart Cuts, and his newest book is Dream Teams, Working Together Without Falling Apart. Shane Snow, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, I'm so happy to be here. It's a delight to have you here. What has happened, in your view, in the workplace today that really make collaboration and teams and partnerships, teams large and small, a, such an essential part of work today? Well, I think, for one, it's always been an essential part of just how we've made it as humans. There's, there's so much about human beings that makes us built to work together. Um, you know, we're not the biggest creature out there, and yet we won planet Earth, and that, in large part, has to do with our ability to work together. But I think the reason it's gotten, whether there should be more emphasis now on teamwork, is because just the way that technology and the world itself has developed. We can do so much so quickly um, that with that comes a lot of problems that are a lot harder to solve by ourselves. A lot of the problems that businesses face in particular or, you know, say in communities or in politics are problems that are, are thornier and more complicated than, you know, when we were living around campfires and we were trying to fend off the saber-toothed tiger. And so... We uh, just, as the world gets more complex, so do the problems and so does our need to rely on collaboration to solve them. The, the basic principle is we're only going to be as smart as the smartest person in a group if we don't learn to collaborate well enough that we can unlock something smarter. Yet if we look at businesses today, I mean, everything you say is absolutely true. There are teams and collaboration is essential for, for companies to work today. Yet if we go back to the 50s and 60s and even 70s, it wasn't as big a deal. Something has, something's changed. I think the pace of change is also increasing. Uh, you know, I do think that it, it comes down to a couple of things. One is, uh, you know, just simplicity, right? Uh, things moved slower. There's less urgency. We didn't have the internet and text messages to just deliver emergencies to us so quickly. So I think that's a factor. I think also because we, uh, the world has grown and because of communication and the internet, we now, we are increasingly uh, on top of each other and, you know, and in each other's way. And, and I think we're confronted with a lot of different opinions, a lot of different people. And that's a business opportunity, right? You can reach more people. You can uh, create value for more people. But with that comes a whole set of challenges that, you know, just built into our human nature is uh, suspicion for people who aren't like us. And, uh, and I think that generates a lot of, of issues. You know, you look in uh, just at the community level or the civic level or, you know, even at the level of Congress, and it, uh, it's very clear that we have a hard time dealing with our different opinions, with our different backgrounds, with people's different uh, wants, and 
desires and needs, and that generates a lot of problems that I think uh, the way to overcome that is that very same thing, bringing different people together to solve them. Mm-hmm. And talk about the difference, as you see it, between large teams that, that come together for a particular project and kind of ongoing teams and ongoing partnerships that have a different purpose. Yeah, this is a really good point. We we have this idea, I think, that's been fixed for a long time that you know, the team should last forever, and and it's not you know family should last forever. But but why should a team that was formed to solve a problem, why should that team stick together once the problem is solved? It doesn't necessarily have to. And so there are different kinds of collaborations, um, you know, and some of them the most extreme version of this. You bring up really large teams. Uh, the most extreme thing that you could think of is the aliens come to destroy the Earth, and suddenly everybody on the planet has to work together. And guess what? In that kind of situation, we forget about the borders between our countries, and we forget about some of the things that we're fighting each other for. But, you know, when we win, then we go back to, you know, to competing and to, to squabbling, and, and some of that's okay and some of that's not. But there are these magical partnerships where, you know, these... Uh, where people come together and, you know, it feels like they can do the impossible and they keep on going. And part of the, there's a whole lot of ingredients to, you know, to what I would call a dream team, but a dream collaboration that keeps going uh, has to have a level of adaptation. You're not doing the same thing. Um, I, I think a great example of this in real life is uh, if you've ever gone and watched improv comedy, uh, really good comedians sort of co-creating something funny out of nothing, and they'll just keep going and keep going and keep going. Part of what makes that work is, uh, you know, they're, they're switching off, they're handing the, the ball off to each other, so to speak, um, and they're, they're playing off each other, but also they're changing constantly. They're not sticking around doing the same thing. They're not doing the same bit or the same skit. It evolves over and over and over again, and this is what great businesses do. This is what great partnerships do as well if they want to you know, not fall apart or they want to say, okay, the job is done, it's time to move on. Is there a way to know in advance if a partnership or a team will work? Are, are there guideposts along the way? Or is it just one of those things that, that's almost magical sometimes? It certainly feels magical. There, there is a formula, um, and there's also ways that you can spot potential. So the analogy I've been using is human chemistry is kind of like cooking or regular chemistry. It comes down to the ingredients you use and how you mix them and you know the temperature you cook them at. And so you can identify that you have the right ingredients for uh, a partnership or a collaboration or a team that's going to do really well, but then really the way that they mix is, uh, is often what makes the difference. So, and, and that's a little harder, predict, harder to predict, but there is a bit of a formula. The, the components of it are a team that is going to be great at solving problems, that's going to be smarter than the smartest person in the team, needs to, be what, needs to have what's called cognitive friction. Uh, and that comes from having different things in your head. So uh, I call it cognitive diversity, different perspectives, different um, strategies, different experiences, and that they bring to the table. And if those differences are relevant enough, then that group can, can solve problems better and be, be very smart and feel magical. But it doesn't work if they don't actually mix 
their ideas, if they don't actually let their different ways of seeing things do battle. Um, but that doesn't make a difference if no one's willing to then change their viewpoint as a result of that you know, intellectual battle. And so you know, the formula is kind of that. You want um, cognitive diversity to mash together and create friction, and then you want to add humility. Um, it, that's sort of the, the underlying template, and, and that makes it sound you know, simultaneously nerdier and easier than it actually is. But if you know that that's the challenge, you need to keep things in this zone where there is a cognitive friction and you need to stay humble enough to change, then the challenge becomes identifying the kinds of different people that you want to bring together that have the chance of you know, having their ingredients mix and make something magical. Is that more difficult in certain businesses that attract a certain kind of people? There is almost a homogeneity to people that are attracted to certain businesses, and it prevents sometimes, it would seem, the kind of diversity, the kind of cognitive diversity that you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is actually something that's a problem everywhere. But you look at the history of innovation. Innovation happens when someone changes the game, not when someone just plays it a little bit better. You know, that's, that's improvement. But innovation is when you reinvent something. And fundamentally, you reinvent something by breaking the rules or breaking the norms or rethinking the assumptions. But what happens is we, as human beings, or say in a business, we find something that works, we succeed because we were clever or because we did some bit of innovation, and then we kind of get stuck on that. It's like you're, you know, you're climbing a mountain range. You get stuck on a mountain peak that's pretty good, and, uh, and then you say you can't think. It's called cognitive entrenchment in psychology terms, but you can't see any other way of doing something. And, uh, and this, then you say, well, this is the, way, the best way for things to happen. We call this the best practice. So then you recruit people who can then march up that same mountain with you. And, uh, and then, yes, you get industries that are, are it's easier to attract uh, because you're marketing to and you're speaking to a certain kind of person that's going to go up that certain mountain. Uh, whereas the way that you would be disrupted or invent something new if you did it yourself would be if you mixed up some different people and, uh, and attacked the problem from the ground again, from a fresh angle. This, you know, I saw this, I did not for this book, but for a, a different study, we took a look at government payroll data. And in California, there was actually something pretty interesting, uh, which is that highway patrol uh, jobs are overwhelmingly men in those jobs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and you can kind of understand why, you know, it's a sort of a profession that's been thought of and marketed and, and talked about as, uh, as sort of this tough guy job. Um, but you look at uh, criminal justice programs uh, in schools and half of the students are men, the other half are women. So, you know, what is it about that job and the way that we're talking about it that is leading fewer women to, you know, to actually be able to climb through the ranks and, and be a state patrolman, say patrol woman. And, uh, and I actually took that question, I didn't talk about that, but I took that question into the book Dream Teams and I looked at police partnerships and detective partnerships and how the success rates show that when you have men and women working together, they tend to have a better chance of solving crimes and being more confident that they're not making mistakes and actually shooting fewer people. And, uh, and it's interesting once you start to look 
at uh, at the world like that because uh, then you say, well, you know, if we're not trying to be mean or you know or discriminatory, we're still uh, shooting ourselves in the foot, so to speak, by setting up these professions in a way that are just sort of skewed towards it's just going to attract more men, and that actually will make us less good at solving the crimes together. The men will get better in their jobs as police officers and detectives if they're working with, uh, with more women as well. Is there a difference that you've seen with respect to how partnerships or teams work in an environment that is a struggling environment, a startup environment, a troubled environment, where everybody's pulling together, or an environment where there's lots of success and everybody wants a piece of the credit? Talk about that difference. Yeah, so both of those things are exciting, right? It's exciting to feel like you're part of this, you know, pirate crew that, you know, may not survive and you're going against the odds. And if you make it, that's really rewarding. Uh, it's also really exciting to be part of something that, you know, is moving and growing and, uh, you know, and you can make a lot of money. The, the first one, though, the one where you're in it together, kind of overcoming these big challenges, that is, uh, is much more motivating, um, than the other, and it's also much better at bonding a group. Um, the you know a group doesn't bond over yay we're being successful and making tons of money. A group will bond over a shared struggle. Actually, one of the best ways to build empathy for someone or to, to build a relationship with someone who's very much not like you is to have a shared hard experience or to to realize that you've both been through something similarly difficult. Um, that's really powerful psychologically. And, and that is one of those things why a lot of times these startup companies, uh, these ragtag groups that are trying to change the world, why people do stick around in those teams for a long time, even though you know, a startup company eventually becomes a bigger company and has to adapt and the problems change that they're solving. Um, a lot of times people do stick around for a long time because it feels more like a family if you've been through hard things. This is why you know, being in the military... Uh, you come back and you have this bond with, you know, your military brothers and sisters that have also served because you've been through really hard things together. Uh, that's very, very powerful. Also, the, arguably, there are different skill sets involved in, in the struggling side versus the successful side, the managing side. Yes. Yes, certainly from a leadership standpoint. You know, it's, it's easier to be a leader when things are going well. Um, and, uh, you know, and seem like a hero than when things are going very, very badly and, you know, you have to, the kinds of problems are trickier to solve. It's, uh, it's also much more of a growing experience, obviously. Uh, you know, going to the gym and not getting your muscles sore means you're not going to grow very big muscles, right? Mm-hmm. But there is this danger that you hurt yourself, and we're all afraid of that, so we'd, we'd rather you know, not feel the pain. We'd rather be in a, a situation where the sailing is smooth, but you grow more. And, and it is this sort of the higher the risk, the higher the reward, especially when it comes to things like business. But, uh, but yeah, you know, a lot of people don't start companies, not because they don't have ideas, but because it's going to be hard and because they're going to have to convince people to, you know, to work with them that uh, for, you know, little pay and many hours and, lots of challenges, and it may not work out, and, and all of that is stressful. But, uh, you know, I, I think that, that the rewards are worth it and that this is, we need more people 
doing that and uh, you know and taking on the odds. That's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is to help people understand a little bit better how we can overcome things that seem impossible. Um, and because it's not just down to us, it's down to the combinations of people that we bring in to work on things. Do we learn anything by looking at what might be kind of the classic team, looking at sports and what happens there? Yes, actually. So I'm not much of a sports guy at all, but I, I had to with this question. I had to dig into sports. And I was particularly interested in team sports where really the dynamic of the team means everything. There's some sports like baseball. I grew up playing baseball. That was my one sport. But baseball is, is really often just a, a one-on-one matchup between the batter and the pitcher. And, you know, the, the rest of the team is, you know, is certainly important and involved, but, but it's less about coordinating between lots of people. You know, there's, there's two or three people that coordinate in a given play. But in something like basketball or hockey, it's like this ongoing sort of battle where, you know, every team member really counts at every second. And when you look at the best teams in the world, the best team sports, um, there's actually a, a, a guy who did this analysis. His name is, uh, is Scott Walker. He tried to find the 10 greatest teams of all time across all sports and see what's in common with them. And I took a look at his research and, and dug in something really interesting about, uh, about teams that continue to win for years and years and years. Not just, you know, they win a couple times, but dynasties. They have a lot of things in common. One of those things is they don't succumb to this thing that happens with sports teams. Is once you've won a couple of times, your goal is not necessarily to win the championship. Your goal is to be the greatest player ever. We actually see this in basketball, right? Mm-hmm. With a, right. You know, LeBron James is so good, but without you know, a team uh, that, uh, you know, without the right team, he's not going to be able to beat the other team even though he might be the best player. You see that over and over again in sports. And he's won a few times. Now he's trying to, to go down in history as the greatest of all time. So it changes a little bit of the way you play. Uh, my favorite examples of sports teams are, uh, are the communist teams, actually. The, the women's volleyball team in Cuba that for decades just destroyed everyone. Or the, the Soviet national hockey team from 1960 to 1988 pretty much beat everybody, never lost. And part of what is going on there that I think is interesting is the players don't get paid based on their stats. Uh, they stay on the team or not based on if the team wins. So it's, it's more about getting the puck in the net than about uh, looking good. There's certainly, you know, everyone wants to look good. But they, uh, you know, when I, I looked into the Soviet national hockey team in particular, they called themselves servants of the puck. <laughs> And they were okay if the ch- plan changed, you know, mid-play. And they would sacrifice their bodies for uh, the sake of the puck getting in the net. And, um, and they also, they looked at the sport very differently than, than other, uh, other teams. They looked at the whole world as things that they could bring in as analogies for hockey. So they learned ballet, and they would do ninja moves on their ice skates and jump off of trees. And they had these coaches that would push them not just you know very hard practice wise but to uh to draw on all of these other things and uh and even though you know they looked silly to the canadians they they did this ballet dance around them and they never lost and uh and part of that was their ultimate ultimate goal was always just get the puck in the net and you know you think that that's the goal of every sports team but there's a lot of incentives that we build in that uh, you know, leads you to get the rebound yourself rather than block someone so that your teammate can get the rebound. 
Um, and, uh, and that all adds up to, uh, you know, over time, a team, the difference between a team being great and a team being amazing and a dynasty. How much does economic reward or compensation of, of individuals that may be, man, it may be different across the team, how does that play into the way teams operate from what you've seen? Yeah, so, I mean, in the sports example, it's very much a factor. If you get paid more and you'll get traded to better teams based on how many points you score, then you're going to optimize for you scoring the points. Um, there, there's statistics now that, uh, that we have in hockey and basketball that I think we need to come up with similar things for business, but this idea of plus minus, which is when you're on the court, the team scores X many more points a game than when you're not on the court, whether you're scoring the points or not. So you're, how was your impact on the overall performance of the team? Uh, we don't pay players based on that uh, as much yet, but we do kind of rank players and, uh, and use that as a score, scoring mechanism uh, to decide how good someone is. That's really important because if the economic incentives are leading you to do something that may be in your best interest but not necessarily in the team's best interest, that's going to be a problem. I think when you have a team of people and some are getting paid more than others um, and they recognize that that's fair, uh, that's fine. But when that becomes an ego thing, you know, and, and that becomes a, a reason to not admit that your plan is not the right one or not admit you're wrong or not revise your viewpoint, that becomes toxic. You know, there's this thing in American business especially, but I think in a lot of countries, where we defer to seniority and experience and not in a, it'd be nice to, you know, people who are, are more elder than you kind of way, but in a, because I've been doing this for longer, I'm not going to listen to you kind of way. Mm. And that is really dangerous. And, and that can come with the, you know, the economic thing as well. The last thing you want in a leader is someone who's unwilling to change their mind or unwilling to listen to anyone, no matter how young or how crazy they sound, because that is, uh, it's just going to limit the potential. You know, we're just exploring less intellectual territory when we do that. And, uh, and all that is ego, and, and I think a lot of times that boils down to economic incentives. Talk about the difference, if there is, between teams that are put together in an organization or in, in, in any kind of a situation by someone, as opposed to teams that come together organically. It's an interesting question. I took a look at mentorship not for this book, for, for a previous project, but I looked at the statistics, the data on mentorship programs. So when a company assigns you a mentor to kind of help you with your work versus basically uh, the, the paradox I was looking at is why do a lot, most of these corporate mentorship programs, most school mentorship programs, don't actually in the long run lead people to make more money and have better careers and all of that. Um, and yet some mentorship relationships do, very much do. And the difference is when there's a mentorship relationship that is organic, where the mentor cares about the person's journey, not just helping them learn a skill, that relationship tends to last longer. That mentor will tend to tell them the hard things that they don't want to hear but need to hear and will be okay with the discomfort of that conflict. Whereas if you're assigned a mentor... The mentor is just trying to help you out with this task, and it's probably going to be take it easy on you. So they don't care as much about you personally, or you know, it's it's more painful to say something uh, that that someone they don't know very well doesn't want to hear than someone they really truly care about their journey. 
and I think that applies with teams as well. It's uh, you're going to have a better result potentially if there forms an organic trust and a willingness to tell people what they don't want to hear and still love each other because of it. The danger with organic teams forming is a lot of times we'll form teams based on who we like, and we like people when they have our similar personalities mm-hmm. and they like things that we like, and that means that you are you're potentially you know, limiting the ingredients you're working with. A lot of startup companies start this way because you, know, you need a lot of trust. You need to be able to sort of um, you know, be this, uh, this group of misfits taking on the world, and, and sometimes the easiest people to bring on board for that sort of thing are your friends who, by definition, will be similar to you in a lot of ways. And that may be fine in the early days when the challenge is just keeping something afloat. But when you need to scale a business or when you need to tackle some really thorny problems, then you're going to wish that, uh, you know, if you're smart, you're going to wish that you had a more uh, diverse group. So, so that's sort of the yin and yang of the, the organic group formation. A smart leader that brings a team together deliberately, you know, like Ocean's Eleven, right? Those guys didn't know each other. But uh, Danny Ocean brought different people with different skills and different points of view together for that project. And they did manage to trust each other and get along. And then, so as long as you can figure out how to build that in, then, uh, then the organic versus inorganic thing goes away. I, I think if you can identify, in the mentor example, if you, can, if you can identify people that will be willing to be along someone's journey and are the kind of mentor that, uh, that is going to care about this particular person's um, plight enough to, to tell them the hard things, then you can put them together and it'll work out. And finally, talk a little bit about the nexus between teams and creativity, individual creativity versus team creativity. Yeah, so the prevailing theory of creativity, it's hardly a theory anymore, it's right. kind of been shown over and over again, is that creativity is when you connect things that haven't been connected before. You know, nothing's created it for nothing. All the atoms on this planet existed you know, for a long time. So the same is true with, uh, with ideas. You're connecting things that haven't been connected before. And, uh, and this is possible you know, when you bring two people together who have different ways of looking at things. You know, John and Paul and the Beatles were very different in their approaches to music. And you know, uh, John was a little bit more uh, crazy and spontaneous. And you know, he would, uh, would drink and stand on the couch while they're writing songs. And, and Paul was very meticulous. And he would write down every tiny little note in his notebook in perfect handwriting. And, you know, and, and they were kind of this magical partnership for the time that they had. Um, and that was creativity, you know, the two of their brains doing that thing. But it happens in your own brain, too. We talk about Einstein as the, the quintessential genius. And Einstein wasn't singularly focused on, uh, you know, on physics and, uh, you know, and what became the theory of relativity. He was working in the patent office where he was exposed to all sorts of different ways of thinking, of inventing, of you know, engineering and, you know, and everything uh, that you could think of. He was learning very in-depth about all of these different things and building a set of perspectives in his own head. That, uh, and he also played the violin. He played a mean violin. He was really into the theater. Um, all of these things in his head gave him this database from which he could make connections. And so when he was working on physics... He could draw from places that, uh, that other physicists didn't because they didn't have as much cognitive diversity in their own head. He also had you know, this rival, Niels Bohr, that was really pushing him uh, because he wanted to, to make the breakthrough before Niels. 
and so there there was a you know a little bit of a, a friendly competition or maybe not so friendly that that ended up being kind of a collaboration um, afoot as well. But yeah, creativity is really about being able to do that, being more widely studied or being able to to put things together that don't necessarily belong together. A lot of what we call creative people or creative geniuses are people that they simply have more in their heads from different sources and they have less inhibition of saying, well, what if we did connect these things? Or what if we did say that maybe gravity isn't the real theory? You know, that's a crazy thing to say, but it turns out, you know, when we learn that Einstein asked that question, we say, oh, no, that's creative. That's genius. Shane Snow, his book is Dream Teams, Working Together Without Falling Apart. Shane, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you.